in 10 minutes, you're in a Burmese city called Katong. You get your passport stamped and then you start cruising around to these islands in the Andaman Sea and these islands truly stunning. But when you pull up to the island, there's not 57 motorboats, it's two motorboats. It's the top, top in my list of one of the most magical places. And as you said, you've got this incredible expanse, this horizon with about 2000 temples of varying sizes. I've had friends do it. It's, I mean, I'm going to equate it to torture. That, that might be 10 bucks. It's going to be a brutal ride. I mean, I know one guy who took it over and then he was begging to take the flight back. As you mentioned, I'm trying to go to every country in the world. And I mean, this is a tiny segment of the you know, world travel population. Welcome to the Winging It Travel podcast with me, James Hammond where every Monday I'll be joined by guests to talk about their travel stories, travel tips, backpacking advice, and so much more. Right now, I'm taking the podcast on the road traveling with me. So tune in every week for short form episodes detailing all my travels alongside my Monday guest episode. Are you a backpacker, traveler, gap year student, or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. This is a casual, informative podcast designed for you to inspire you to travel. There'll be stories to tell, tips to share, and experiences to inspire. Welcome to the show. Let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode, where I'm joined by Rick Gazarian, who has travelled to 166 countries, and he's on a mission to visit every UN country in the world, which is 193. Rick hosts the great Counting Countries podcast, which interviews travellers in a long format like this one. And to add to that, Rick has written books, blogs, is a professional photographer, a film producer, and the travel leader. Rick, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much, James, and great to be speaking with you. Yep, really excited about this chat. Where are you based right now? I am in my hometown, my home city of Boston, visiting my father for the summer. Oh, nice. And where do you normally locate yourself? Um, I technically call my home Bangkok. Oh, wow. One of the best cities in the world, isn't it? Arguably, I think a lot of people <laughs> would agree with that sentiment. I interviewed a guy who said that he left four years ago and he's on a mission to find a better place in Bangkok, but he knows there isn't. <laughs> still looking. Yeah, still looking. So I think he'll go back. Yeah, great city. Nice. Okay, we're going to delve into some of your early travel history because 166 countries is a heck of a number to get to and you're on a mission to get to all of them. So growing up, in the US, I assume. Was there any travel early doors when you're growing up? Yep. So um, my parents were uh, pretty avid travelers for their day. Um, you know, whether we were driving to Cape Cod for a week during the summer, but we also had a couple of Caribbean tr uh, trips mm. as a uh, when I was a kid. And we also had the good fortune. Um, one of my classmates, his mother was born in the Philippines. Um, and twice junior high and high school, my family and I made a family trip to the Philippines to visit our friends. But even better was adding on Hong Kong one year and adding on Tokyo another year. So that was uh, pretty eye-opening. <laughs> to do those visits uh, during, you know, during school at that point. Sure. Any culture shock in there? 
um, I don't think I, uh, I wouldn't use the word culture shock, but just uh, on the positive, like amazement, like going to Hong Kong was such a shock of electricity in a good way. I mean, that city is alive, the neon, the lights, taking the star ferry mm. across from Kowloon to Hong Kong. I mean, those memories, those experiences stayed with me. It was just a fantastic way to to see some world-class cities. Yeah, Hong Kong I've never been to. Uh, what what do you make of the what it is now? I guess when you were there, it was pre, I guess, how can I put this, UK giving it back to China. But what do you make of it now? Is it going to be same, same, or is it going to slightly change, do you think? Yeah, so when I went, it was British, and then we took the ferry to Macau, which was Portuguese. Oh, okay, done, yeah. Uh, yeah. Stamp collecting at that point. I mean, I don't want to come off as some political expert. Um, right. I, I, my take as a visitor who goes for two days or a week. Yeah. I imagine it's you're going to have a very very similar experience. I mean, I've been a couple of times to Hong Kong under the Chinese. I mean, I think that sentiment is a hundred percent different as a citizen yeah. of Hong Kong. That your life is completely different. Um, and it's no longer whatever the saying was, two states, one country. It's now just one country. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. And the Caribbean, uh, what countries did you dip into early doors then? Uh, honestly, I don't. I mean, we took a couple of cruises. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think I was more excited about being able to watch movies on the ship and <laughs> eat a hamburger at 11 p.m. I mean, I, I you know, we, we went to Bahamas or San Juan or Granada. Actually, I'll take one, one other uh, side note is um, I realized I'd been to Venezuela. So I had a memory of going to Venezuela <laughs> and I was speaking to my dad. I'm like, dad, did we ever go to Venezuela on one of those trips? He's like, I don't know. So I went through a bunch of old photos and did find some photos of me in Caracas. Um, so that was another place that I did visit. <laughs> it's amazing how you forget to go to places, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> because of my adult life, I'm I pretty much have a pretty good re recollection yeah. of where I've been, and uh, from my father, it is uh, not the quite same level. <laughs> Fair enough. And did these early trips maybe spark something in you that potentially in the future you want to do more of this? And we're starting to figure out, okay, maybe let's go to different areas of the world or even different states, whatever in the US. So. Um, my experience in Hong Kong did make an impression because I actually moved there after I graduated from college. Mm. Um, and that was twofold. One, um, because of my experience, my visit to Hong Kong during school. But I also had one friend who is one year older than me who also moved to Hong Kong after graduation. So um, I did move there. I lived there only for three months. I kind of ran out of money. The job was to find a, uh, the, the goal was to find a job in Hong Kong and live there for a couple of years. I did not find a job that was going to be able to support me. So I did leave after three months. Okay. And just quickly on Hong Kong, again, that's probably another country I've not really touched on. It's what's some of the best things to see in Hong Kong if people want to visit maybe for like a city break or a week there. Yeah. Um, it's a fantastic, I mean, there's the very obvious, I'm sure when you look at the top things to do in TripAdvisor list, um, it's taking the tram up to Victoria Peak, 
and in this case, it's a good reason that's on there because when you do get to the top of that mountain and you overlook Hong Kong Island and Kowloon at dusk, I mean, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, taking the ferry, uh, the Star Ferry from Kowloon to Hong Kong. Um, I went to some great temples my last visit, which was at least six years ago. Um, and I don't have the precise name, but it's like um, a monastery on the on the Kowloon side, a little further out. It was like a temple of a thousand and one monks or something like that. And you had to walk up a fairly big hill mm -hmm. and there were just hundreds and hundreds of golden statues of monks huh. up this path. So uh, someone can Google that. I have a blog post about it, but that's a cool thing. And, you know, that's on the top 10. Nice. Okay. And where did you grow up in US? In Boston. In Boston. And that was throughout the whole childhood until adulthood. Yeah. I, I even went to college here, university. Uh, okay. I worked in Boston after graduation. And then uh, I did move to Chicago for uh, another traditional corporate job. Yeah, which kind of leads me nicely on to the next part. You mentioned on your website about the whole leaving university, getting a corporate job or a career, if you like. And obviously, we all know the 2008 crash and stuff like that happened. How did that impact your travels? Because I think you mentioned on your website that you would lose a job and then think, oh, okay, well, I'll go away for a bit. And that kind of turns into like a year trip. Like how, what were you starting to see in terms of your life change from maybe going from the career path, if you like, to maybe change into traveling a lot, but also having your own income via your own business? Yeah. So I was working in the financial services industry in 08 and we had the uh, financial crisis at that point and about a 25% of the people lost their job at my company. Mm -hmm. And I was ecstatic, James. <laughs> um, I did not love my boss. I didn't even love my job. I did love the money. And yeah. I wasn't proactively going to give up my salary. So being laid off was this great kick out the door. And I was told in November, on January 1st, I was going to be severed from the company. And I used that last six weeks of 2008 in the office to start planning for my trip in 09. Um, <laughs> so 09, I took a 12-month trip around the world. And during that trip, I, I just knew. I mean, it was, I guess, a slowly developing revelation that I was not going to go back to a traditional corporate nine to five type existence. And I was going to have to figure something else out because I just didn't want to go back to that old template of life. Very interesting. I think I'm in the same journey now, not like from a corporate perspective, but just from a, a normal job. I don't want to go back to like that nine to five normal mm -hmm. job routine. It kind of scares me a little bit, <laughs> but it's hard to figure out sometimes how to not go back to that. percent. Uh, yeah, it's a tough game. Okay, and we're going to mention one country early doors that maybe had an impact on you out of the 166, and that's Armenia. So when did you visit there first? Uh, my first visit to Armenia was in 2002. I went with my father. I am ethnically Armenian. Um, so, you know, the, 
there was a strong affinity to the country, to the people, without really knowing why. And Mm -hmm. this was somewhat of a discovery uh, when I went back to for my journey to my quote unquote ethnic homeland. Interesting. I got my first dose of probably like Armenian culture in Lebanon this year. Mm. Uh, there's a big, strong uh, Armenian yeah, population in Beirut and loved the area. We met a few locals who are Armenian. Uh, one of the persons who hosted us, her parents escaped the genocide. So very interesting lady, got lots of stories and just the nicest people and so much food. Wow. You're absolute feast go, you're not gonna go wrong with that <laughs> so what can you tell people i've got some actually facts here about armenia i don't know if you are interested in facts i've got some quick fire ones like done some research it's known as an ancient country so one of the six to survive for a thousand years they were the first country to adopt christianity and the first church was built there uh the homeland of the apricot which is my favorite fruit and Armenian bread is on the list of the intangible culture heritage list by UNESCO. That, James, that's an impressive list. So I like it. I, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, Armenia is today just a tiny nation, less than 3 million people, completely landlocked. The country has waxed and waned over the centuries from touching the Black Sea, the Caspian, and the Mediterranean all at one point to not existing at all. Um, So, I mean, it's really had all the trials and tribulations that you can imagine. I mean, some other interesting um, statistics or trivia, um, and this this changes over time, but the oldest shoe was discovered in Armenia. The oldest wine press was discovered in Armenia. So, uh, you know, this has been a crossroads of humanity uh, wow. over, you know, millennia. So there's a lot of activity uh, over uh, over the years in this area. And what are some of your favorite spots to visit in Armenia or maybe things that people should definitely go and see? Uh, for example, uh, I'm going next year. So I'd, maybe two or three things that I will obviously go and okay. want to see. Well, we'll have to talk again, James, and I'll, I'll give you a precise and granular <laughs> rundown. Yeah. Um, Yerevan, the capital is really, I have spent, months and months or probably like a year and a half there over over my life um just one of my favorite cities capitals it has really grown into this cosmopolitan city um it's a great restaurant scene it's a great bar scene it's a great music scene a great wine scene it's completely walkable um and there's so much history and culture there as well i mean it just, uh, Yerevan just dates back centuries uh, and a lot of richness in that city. Uh, so one of my favorite places to hang out. Um, but beyond that, it's a great road trip country, uh, okay. renting a car. Um, Yerevan's kind of in the center of the country, so you can kind of divide it in two, up north and down south. Um, in the middle is also near, kind of near Yerevan is Lake Sevan, which is, again, we're a landlocked country. That's our biggest body of water. Um, the second biggest city, which is, you know, you go from 1.5 million in Yerevan, second biggest city is Gumri, couple of hour drive. That's only 100,000 people. It was subject to a devastating earthquake, I think in 88, 
Um, over the last several years, there's been a lot of investment and it's become a real vibrant town to visit. Uh, there's some great UNESCO sites on the northern part of the country, uh, a couple of churches and monasteries, beautiful nature in Dillijan, which is called the Switzerland of Armenia, huh. um, in South uh, Korverop, uh, a beautiful monastery uh, that overlooks Mount Ararat and uh, Norvank, a beautiful uh, stone church in a valley uh, with a unique staircase on the exterior. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> wow. Uh, I did read somewhere that the road trip is the way to go. So I'm yeah. glad to hear you second that. Um, yeah, I 100% will be getting a, a car out and, and driving the country, that's for sure. And the food, what's some of your favorite food there maybe people can taste? Yeah, I, I'm, even though I am Armenian, I'm always even a little confused answering this question. Um, and again, it's, you know, this crossroads, it's really kind of a smorgasbord of, you know, Russian influences, Lebanese influences, Turkish influences, Persian influences. Mm. And again, my first visit was in 02. I got to be honest, James. It was not the food my mother was making in many cases. <laughs> and I got two of my first, two, two of my worst food sicknesses on my two week trip. Okay. <laughs> now, all that being said, uh, the food scene now is awesome. And part of it, tragically, is the diasporans from Syria and Lebanon you know, due to the economic crisis in Lebanon and the mm. awful civil war in Syria, the Armenians of those regions, a lot of them are decamping to Yerevan. The silver lining is that's the best cuisine in the world. And now there's a lot of awesome Lebanese slash Armenian Syrian restaurants. So I am very, very excited when I go back to my visits uh, because now it's just, you know, awesome food, awesome restaurants. So traditional Lebanese fair, uh, you know, whether it's shawarma or hummus, go for that. Nice. Okay. And in terms of your experience of traveling a heck of a lot of countries, how is it for budget? Is it fairly decent for the dollar or is it slightly expensive? Well, uh, it's changed for the worst just in the last couple of years, unfortunately. Uh, so okay. Armenia for, you know, the first 18 years I've been visiting was such a great, great value. I mean, mm -hmm. things were really, you know, very, very economical. Um, so unfortunately now that's not the case. Part of that is uh, inflation, like most of the world has been uh, yeah. witnessing. The second element is the Russians and Armenia is one of those countries where Russians are able to visit without a visa. Uh, um, like Georgia as well, the same? Georgia as well. So, yeah. um, and when I say visit, these days that means moving to. Yeah. So, I, you know, I've heard different numbers, uh, whether it's 50,000, 100,000, but these Russians who are now moving to Armenia have distorted the entire market for the country. So mm. the worst, uh, the most severe example is real estate. Like the old days, I would rent an apartment for 35 bucks a night or $30 a night. Now that's going to be double, maybe more. Uh, so there's simply not enough supply for housing. 
And again, that's just driven everything up in terms of cost. But still, for context, it's not Italy, it's not Amsterdam, it's not New York. It's still a very economical place to uh, visit. Oh, very interesting. Okay. And what time of year would you recommend people to go to? Yeah. yeah. Um, September, first half of October, uh, May, first half of June. Uh, July, August can be brutally hot. Um, and I mean, th there's no point in really going during the winter. So that spring and autumn, in my opinion, best time to go. Okay. I was planning to go in mid to late August. So I have to. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can be 40 plus on, yeah. on one of those hot days. So. <laughs> okay. I have to figure that one out. <laughs> and very quickly, you mentioned volunteering there or you stayed there for a length of time. Yeah, so I did that visit with my father, and then the following year, uh, actually, okay, well, I mean, not that it matters. My first visit to Armenia was 03. Then I went back in 04, and I stayed there for four months volunteering. Nice. And I don't know much about Armenia, really, so it's quite an interesting question, but is that opportunity quite open to a lot of people to go and do? Like, What sort of volunteering would it be? Is it like teaching or...? Other sectors. Yeah, so I'll I'll give a shout out to the organization that yeah. helped me. Uh, it's called Armenian Volunteer Corps. So you can Google them, look on Facebook, um, and they will help place foreigners into volunteer positions. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a ton of opportunity um, in terms of volunteering. If you have some specialized skills, uh, Armenian Volunteer Corps (AVC) can help place you in that. I personally was working with an after-school group and a uh, orphanage. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I'll put the I'll, I might put the link in the show notes actually, so people can access that. That'd be pretty cool for a lot of people. Okay, we're going to move on to. We mentioned this a bit earlier about your change of thinking from going from the corporate world, knowing that you want to travel, and you wanted to set up your own business to have your own income to facilitate some travel. And basically not be location dependent, right? I guess that's the old main. So what were you planning in terms of a business to work on during, you know, during your travels on the road? How, how were you thinking and what were you thinking about setting up? Yeah, so that was the key of the question. Um, so I got back from my 09 trip. I did start, it, it, the two businesses I started were non-travel related. Mm -hmm. So one was actually somewhat of a similar uh, business to Uber. Oh, um, okay. Uh, and I did run that for at least five years. Uh, that did not work out, but never uh, generated a lot of income. The second business worked out that was simply investing in real estate. And that is what sustains me today. So I've been very fortunate the way I've set it up. I spend 10% of my time on real estate, but I make 95% of my income on that. And I spend 90% uh, of my time on travel related projects and make 5% of my income on that. <laughs> Sounds like a dream scenario. <laughs> and I guess after the crash in 2008, I mean, it's all great with hindsight, right? That would have been the time to invest in real estate, right? If people, I guess people like you would have been switched on to know that because it couldn't 
get any lower at that point, right? Straight after that crash. <laughs> that, that, that is the logic. And that was the thesis Yeah. Uh, when I started investing. But I mean, I'm not uh, some soothsayer, but it still wasn't obvious. So I started investing in 2011 and there was still blood on the street and people were still extremely fearful. Mm -hmm. uh, but on paper, black and white, uh, with my limited knowledge, it seemed to make sense. And I dipped my toe in the water and it did work out. I do wonder if it's coming again. That same cycle. I'll, I'll tell you in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. It just feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? Especially recently. Okay. And then this leads me on to Global, Ga Global Gaz blog and website, um, which you started as well. So you want to go into the blogging world. And I read something very interesting on your website, which kind of resonated with me is that you realize, and I think this is obvious, so many blogs out there write about the same thing about travel, but you realize that it was about the same places. And if you were going to different type of countries that people don't hear about that often, that that would break through maybe SEO and people would search for that country. And that's a way to go into blogging. So that's quite an interesting thought process. But I guess alongside that, you had to travel to these countries too, right? I think all of that's true. And I mean, I would love to tell you, James, I am some incredibly successful, knowledgeable broker, uh, blogger. Uh, that's not the case. Um, but I mean, logically, it, well, this I'm going to give a, a parallel anecdote, which yeah. will kind of answer this, which I kind of like. And I'm making these numbers up a little bit. But if you go to things to do in Amsterdam, it's mm. something like 2.7 million. <laughs> yeah that's the, in other words all known information is available for amsterdam yeah i went to bangui bangui is the capital of central african republic and if you look at things to do in bangui it's 27 mm -hmm. so using that train of logic i mean there's simply less information about Eritrea in Algeria compared to Amsterdam and Paris. Um, but of course, conversely, there's millions of people searching for info in Amsterdam. Yeah. There's not that many people going on holiday to Gardea, Algeria. <laughs> so fair. And how has the ride been blogging? How have you found it? How often do you normally blog? <laughs> Just per trip? Um that's really changed. And actually, in the last 18 months, I've there's really not any new blog post. I mean, there's some, but it's not of the traditional blogging <clears throat> that I typically was writing after visiting a new country. So that that's changed quite a bit. I think it's just a heck of a lot of work, isn't it? To, to really get, I guess... At the top of my mind, something like Nomadic Matt was one of the first ones to do it, I guess, to really blog. And But he obviously was in uh, early doors and got it going. But if you want to reach that level, that's just going to be a lot of work, isn't it? Day in, day out, week in, getting those blogs out, new content. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I know Nomadic Matt a little bit. He's tremendously successful from a business standpoint. And there is no debate. It is a real business. So it's not like... Oh, I'm typing up something in Chiang Mai, which you know he did at one point or another. Hmm. I mean, now it's a company with employees and benefits. So it's a tremendous 
ton of work to accomplish what he's done or any other blog at that level. I mean, mine, whatever you want to call it, mine is a micro niche blog, um, you know, in the parallel opposite to a nomadic mat. And, and then same thing. I mean, nomadic mat is writing about Paris and Mexico City. Yep. And of course, statistically, that's where most people are going. It's most people are not visiting Eritrea or, you know, Sudan. So, I mean, that that's the reality of it. And for anyone who is looking to maybe go into that like travel business area of website, blog, maybe a podcast, but mostly blogging, is it still key for people to do that because you can add in like affiliate links and there's a potential way to make an income or is that still like the, I'd have to put it, it's what you think is going to happen, but it's actually, it's not that achievable because it's so hard to get to. Uh, it's a hundred percent achievable. Um, but again, it's not just some little fun hobby that you're doing on the beach. I mean, you have to really develop true skill sets, whether it is email marketing, mm. SEO. I mean, it's not just something you're doing, uh, you know, arbitrarily or on a whim. It's a real business and you have to develop real knowledge and experience on how to do this and you can make real money. And mm -hmm. you also, I mean, the one other thing to add, you might be working more hours than you did in a traditional <laughs> nine to five job, but it is your business and it does afford flexibility, mobility and travel. So 100%. Okay. Very interesting. And one quick question as a side note, uh, we'll come to your podcast later, but any temptations to go into vlogging, YouTube, stuff like that? <laughs> well, I do have a YouTube channel and I'm, I mean, I am definitely not a vlogger, but on a funny side note, uh, I went to Iraq the other year and I made two vlogging type videos on mm -hmm. Iraq, part one and part two. And I was traveling with my friend who is a little bit more of established of a YouTuber. And I'm like, oh, this is easy. I just <laughs> got 3000 views on this video. And I mean, I kind of just slapped it together. And those, I mean, those two videos, I mean, did well for me, meaning like, okay, several thousand people watched them. And then I made my third video and then something like 17 people watched it. <laughs> so um, again, it, it, it's the same. I mean, I, I, I know a couple of big vloggers um, like Drew Binsky. Oh, he's or, a demon, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or Paul Babardo from Geography Now. It's the same thing. I mean- of course, some people have lightning striking, but 10 years ago when Paul Barbardo, Barbs, was making a video, 800,000 people weren't watching that first yeah. video. So exactly, yeah. it's the same thing. It's these incredible grinds. Um, and then the final caveat, not everybody makes it. So in other words, even yes. if you are putting in the 12 hours um, and then a couple years later, you might have not broken in and you mm -hmm. still might only be getting five or 10,000 views of video, meaning you're not making money. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I tried a side project. It's still going one year ago to do a coffee podcast that's on YouTube. And it's the strangest thing. It's hard to work out. I would get thousands of views on shorts but no one watches my actual episodes mm -hmm. and I cannot work it out of why. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just a short attention span. I'm not sure, whatever. But when you see one video, I'll give you the example. The other week, 
I'm doing this July series. It finishes today, actually. Uh, one quick snippet of a coffee place around the world that I've been this year. Here's a minute. Bit of video about it, information, exactly. I think one day, a shorter time, I threw something together because I actually talked about it when I was having a coffee. So just put it together. It took two minutes. And that's been the best performing one, probably in the second half of the series. The less mm. effort put in, <laughs> arguably, I'd say it wasn't even that good. But somehow it just gets into the algorithm. I have no idea how it works. <laughs> exactly. The algorithm will never know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What a quote that is. Okay, we're going to move on to a few places that you would like to talk about because uh, I asked for three. So we talked about Armenia. And the second one is Burma mm. uh, because I've been there too and I loved my time there. So when did you visit there? My first time was in 2005. And what drew you to visit Burma initially? Uh, this was another situation. I got laid off. Um, <laughs> And I had booked a three-month trip, and part of that was in Southeast Asia. Um, and it was the simply, I was in Thailand, and I'm looking at the map, and I'm like, oh, Burma. I'm like, okay, this is nearby, because you know I'd been to Cam Cambodia, Laos, and Malaysia, and Vietnam, and Indonesia. So I'm like, okay, let me add this on, and it's obviously a direct flight, and uh you know, it's straightforward. So mm -hmm. it was simple as that. It wasn't some like, oh, I got to see this or do that. I think when I was in Bagan, I couldn't really believe what I was seeing. This area of temples, you, you go to a random one, you sit up there, watch sunset or sunrise, whatever you're doing. Pretty magical, I thought. Yeah. Uh, hands down, I've been to Bagan uh, four different times. Yeah. Oh, uh, five, the first time, 2019, the most recent uh it's the top, top in my list of one of the most magical places. And as you said, you've got this incredible expanse, this horizon with about 2000 temples of varying sizes. And uh, I mean, I will wake up, I hate waking up, but I'm there every morning for sunrise and I'm there for every evening at sunset. And it's, it's incredible. Absolutely amazing. How did it change from 2005 to 2019 in terms of the country? Because we went in 2018, I think it was. And I felt like I was going back to Thailand like 10 years ago, a little bit, like in terms of how rustic it was. But 2005, that would have been what, nearly 20 years before that. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's, it. I mean, it's to me, it's still a lot of the same vibe in the ambiance. I mean, it's a pretty undeveloped country. Um, mm. I mean, anecdotally, I mean, that first visit, I mean, I mean, relatively, there's, there's not that many tourists. I mean, it's, mm. it's a pretty quiet place. Uh, one other like funny thing was literally a SIM card in 05 was either a thousand or $2,000. <laughs> um, so it, wow. it was disconnected. There were no ATMs in the country um, and the tourism infrastructure is simply just a fraction of what it is today. So, um, but so, or like, you know, there's no e-bikes in Bagan uh, in 2005. Um, yeah. But to me, when I, uh, Schwendigan Pagoda, which is this just stunning, magical uh, pagoda temple in the heart of Yangon. And I, you know, I went in 05 and when you go at dusk and there's the, you know, the stupa is like something like 
you know, a hundred meters tall or something. It's all in gold. And there's bells on the top of the stupa and at dusk and the wind's blowing and you hear the bells, the sun's going down. There's only a handful of tourists. It's real Burmese people socializing and praying and spending time with their family. That's the same feeling I got back in 2019 as it was in 05. It's not like, uh, you know, it's, it's not the Louvre with being overrun uh, in that sense. So to me, still a real special place. That place in Yangon, unreal. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we loved that there. And I found Yangon, I love the craziness of that scene. Mm-hmm. You can just gamble on any restaurant down the road. You don't know what it's called. We, because mm-hmm. we, at the time, I'm not anymore really, but we're vegetarian. So we went to a restaurant near the hostel and only one of the seven staff spoke a tiny bit of English, mm. but we tried to communicate. We got through that we didn't want any meat, just uh, the meal. So they said we could do the same meal, but no meat in it, just vegetables. Yeah, that's fine. And not only did they obviously provide the meal, they took the cost of the meat off the price. Yeah. Already the price is $1.50, but now it's like 75 cents to a dollar. I'm like, what is going on here? I couldn't believe it. And I felt almost bad paying the reduced price. But yeah, yeah. yeah the the hospitality was incredible and the people are just equally yeah unbelievable yeah great, great people well where, where else did you visit in burma because we only went to began and yangon did you go to their weird capital city no i haven't i still haven't been there uh my first visit was yangon began mandalay and inlay lake i mean that's lake. yeah that's you know the first visit 99%. I mean, that's intro 101 <laughs> yeah. to Burma. Um, in subsequent years, I, I always go back to those places um, one time or another because they're just awesome. Um, but I've also been to Morocco, which is closer to Bangladesh. That's in Rakhine State. And Morocco really, I mean, it, it's relatively off the beaten path even for Burma. And they have their own temples, their oh. own series of temples in Morocco, which are just stunning and awesome, but more so for their interiors. Um, so that is a real treat. I then, uh, when I was in Morocco, one of the other things you can do is you jump on a, you know, four person little motorized boat. Mm-hmm. and drive around for an hour, two hours, and you go to these small villages. And there are some ethnic groups in Burma. I mean, it's not really a thing today. Um, and the women are dying out. So, you know, you're going back like 60, 70 years. But it's all the women whose faces are completely tattooed, looking like spider webs. Right. So you're able to go visit these villages and meet them and take photos of that. And then in 2019, uh, it was like four hour drive from Bagan or five hours. Uh, the regional capital, Mindat, um, which is Chin State. So I went for the uh, in, uh, like Independence Chin State Day, okay. um, which was just like this really fun festival. It's up in the mountains, rented motorcycles and drove around. There's a lot of Oh, many, many more women with the yeah. spider web faces in this region. And then on one other trip, I went to the islands. You actually leave from Thailand, 
uh, what's the name of that town? Um, on the Andaman Sea in Thailand, the skinny part of Thailand on the west side is the Andaman Sea. And you jump on a boat and in 10 minutes, you're in uh, a Burmese city called Katong. You get your passport stamped and then you start cruising around to these islands in the Andaman Sea and these islands, truly stunning. Oh, do you know what? I, thought, was it, I don't know if it might have been you or I saw this on Google. must have been or Instagram or something like that a few weeks back. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Look like paradise. It's stunning. I, I mean, it's the same islands that are Thai. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah. But when you pull up to the island, there's not 57 motorboats. It's two motorboats. Oh, I think I saw this every week. It's yeah. it, it really, it, uh, you know, I went probably whatever it was, 2018. And every year I'm like, oh, I'm going to go back this year, go back this year. Um, hopefully I'll get back at some point, but just, just so gorgeous. Do you think from a travel perspective that the junta who've taken over would change things from a tourist perspective? Or do you think it's a, just equally okay to go, it'd be the same, same as five years ago it is to now? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I think they want the tourism money. Mm. Um, and I, I haven't yet. I mean, I would visit. I just haven't yet. Yeah. Um, I'm having friends who've been going back the last two years. I think one of the major differences is more parts of the country are off limits because there's actual fighting. Yeah. But my understanding is like the big four, Yangon, Bagan, Mandalay, and Inlay are all visitable. So, okay. That's yeah. Good. And again, I mean, it's like one of those things you're in the country for two days or a week or two weeks, the awfulness in many cases is not going to touch you it's mm -hmm. you're a foreigner visiting yeah okay i think i need to go back to those islands because i i can't believe what i'm seeing yeah, awesome. yeah yeah you, you kind of rejigged my memory there that's great uh okay that's burma that's fantastic we both love that country i think so that's great we're going to move on to the third country which i've not really had actually on the podcast it's madagascar this is a very unique country isn't it just because of the geography it's been isolated for hundreds of years um when did you go there same sort of questions really and what enticed you to visit <laughs> uh, i was just there in uh this year in may yeah uh, so recent visit i mean th this isn't a very inspiring answer the reason i went is simply because i'm going to every country in the world mm -hmm. um but i mean i was very excited about this country um as you said it's unique um it's sort of this giant, I mean, it's almost like a continent. It's isolated. It's this crazy mix of people. Um, a lot of the people tie their heritage to Indonesia, which, oh. yeah, I, I mean, which is sometimes in some ways hard to get your arms around. So, you know, parts of uh, a lot of, you know, over the centuries, people came from Africa, but there was also a giant uh, influx centuries ago from Indonesia. So the people do not, in most cases, look like a, you know, in essence, I, I hate to, you know, a stereotypical yeah. Africa, which, you know, with whatever it is, eight, 600 million or 800 million people, there's no stereotypical, but nonetheless, uh, they have a, a unique look. And then the flora, the fauna, and I, you know, one of the biggest draws, of course, to Madagascar is the lemur. Yeah, which was like a sort of very, very cute monkey looking guy. Well, there's, I forget the number. There's something like a hundred 
something different species of lemurs. Some are not quite cute. Uh, some <laughs> of them are pretty ugly and even a little scary looking, but most of them are like, you, you would just want to watch them for hours. And what's the ease of travel like in Madagascar? And what I mean by this is, you know, Myanmar, you can go there, get a bus to Bagan, whatever. It's pretty fairly simple. But Madagascar, are the roads, they look pretty crap, but are there, is it a bit of a rustic way to travel? That that might be an understatement, James. <laughs> um, I, I, the, the stat I heard is only 10% of the roads are paved. Um, oh, wow. Cool. So it really is one of these kind of raw countries. I mean, yeah, it's in many ways untouched. I mean, there's just, I mean, there's not a ton of tourism. There should be, but mm. it's, it's too, in many ways, it's too uncomfortable. There's not enough infrastructure. Yeah. So get ready for ship roads. Now I, I wish I could tell you, um, you know, some glutton. I mean, I didn't take public transportation. So I was talking with some friends, uh, the capital Tana. And of course, you know, the, the other big thing everybody wants to see is the Avenue de Baobabs. So it's this dirt road in the middle, well, sort of in the middle of nowhere, which is surrounded by these giant towering Baobabs. And this species of Baobabs, I think is only in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, you know, it's some way it's like for me, it's going to the Eiffel Tower, meaning, you know, everybody knows what the Eiffel Tower looks like. Um, I had seen a million tr tr uh, pictures of the Avenue de Baobab, but same thing. I, I mean, it totally beat my expectations. When you get there for sunset, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, so um, you get two ways to get there. Well, three ways. One, you can fly. Mm-hmm which is like a 40-minute flight from the capital to uh, Morandova, which is the, the main city out there, if I'm saying it right. It's 45 minutes. It's an easy flight. The problem is it's expensive. Like one way is like 175 bucks. Mm -hmm. Two, there's only two flights a week. Three, the airline is very not dependable. So <laughs> you, you might get stuck there or your flight might never take off. Then you can get a car and driver. A car and driver, I'll, I'll just say I paid $100 a day. That paid for my driver, the car, the fuel, his food, and his hotel. Um, okay. If you do that drive from Tana to Morandova, it's like 14 hours. And it's something like, and I'm roughing this number, it's something like 400 kilometers. Right. Then the third option is you take a bourse, which is just the public transportation. And I've had friends do it. It's, I mean, I'm going to equate it to torture. So that <laughs> might, I mean, that, that might be 10 bucks, but it's a brutal, it's going to be a brutal ride. I mean, I know one guy who took it over and then he was begging to take the flight back because he, he didn't want to take it back. Yeah. Uh, but there were no flights. I mean, the flights are all sold out because it's like, yeah. you know, 70 person plane. And again, it's only twice a week. So he got stuck uh, taking the bourse back to the capital. So it's <laughs> tough driving, 100% worth it. Um, it's it, Yeah, I really enjoyed the country. Okay. And a side question, you've been to a lot of countries. So who has the worst roads <laughs> that, that you've seen? 
Yeah. Um, th that's hard to say because it's like when you're on them, th then it's the worst. And yeah. then you're looking back. I mean, West Africa, you know, like Guinea or Guinea-Bissau. I mean, there are just some tough roads there. Um, I was in Cameroon the other year. Those were kind of like torture. Um, Madagascar, yeah, those were some tough ones. So th there's a lot of a lot of challenging roads, but those make the good stories. I've weirdly had sort of an idea to do an episode on roads because I'm fed up with seeing crappy roads. <laughs> um, just get like people's opinions of where they've been around the world. Where's the worst roads? I don't know if that'd be interesting. Probably quite boring. But when you when you are on them, you are just cursing it. Um, I think my recent one, I'm sure you've been to Nepal, where it just takes hours and hours mm. to go 80 kilometers. It's just like, oh, mm. it's just soul destroying. <laughs> <laughs> and Madagascar, budget wise, I know you said you pay $100 a day for the driver. Because it's so remote and so untouched, does that make it more expensive, do you think? I don't know if I can work that one out. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, yeah, I always debate about this. I mean, there's some sort of formula. Mm that you can apply. Um, and it's like, sometimes when you have a very, very undeveloped poor country, it ends up being expensive. Um, mm. But I mean, what was I? Yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, if you're living like a local, it's cheap, right? You're mm -hmm. gonna eat food for a couple bucks. You're gonna take the public transportation for 10 bucks. You're gonna stay in a hostel or sleep on someone's floor for 10 bucks or 20 bucks. Um, for me, I have the driver for a hundred bucks. Let's say the hotel for a hundred bucks, but you know, sometimes 50 bucks, mm -hmm. sometimes more. Uh, what's my next question going to be for Madagascar? There's one more question. Oh, it's just gone. Yeah. Okay. No worries. I was just going to finalize Madagascar. Cause again, that is a unique country that I've not heard many people have been there. So um, my next question was going to be cash and money because it's so remote. Do ATMs work there? Can you arrive? Pay card? What's the situation there? Uh, okay. Yep. So in the airport, you have a working ATM machine. You can exchange money and you can get, there's two stores that sell SIM cards in the airport. Mm -hmm. um, so you have all that. Um, but it's one of the, it's also one of those things don't assume when you see an ATM machine that it works. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I was trying to get money out of the capital and it was like that game of um, driving around to four different banks. <laughs> and then the secondary problem is, I can't remember the exact amount, but like a the maximum withdrawal might've been like $60. And then the next problem after that is they cap the number of $60 withdrawals that you can do. No. So the takeaway is bring cash and they are a bit more partial to the euro than the dollar. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because of their connection with uh, France. France. Yeah. Yeah. But they also, yeah. And expect um, more people expect to speak French than English as well. Yes. Uh, that was an interesting conversation with Frank when he went through the Congo. Uh, I was thinking during the conversation, you had one advantage here, you could speak French. I was like, oh, if I was doing that journey and I can't speak French, how on earth would you just get through it? No, no, I, I don't. I mean, what what he did in DRC, 
you, you, I mean, he's insane, but you would have to be five X insane if you couldn't speak French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess Tim Butcher tried many years ago, but had to get out. So yeah, I don't think he speaks French. Uh, there you go. Okay, that's great. I've got some other questions, kind of like about philosophy or your travel, or just a little roundup in terms of a few questions about all these countries. Uh, has anyone given you real culture shock? And do you think culture shock can only happen once? Yeah, I was thinking of this little anecdote from the first time I went to Burma. And mm-hmm. <laughs> like, of course, every year you travel, you gain more experience. And yeah. you know, I wasn't, I'm definitely more experienced now than I was in 05, obviously, logically. Yeah. So I I don't want to say I was scared, but I was taken aback. So in, you know, even more so in 05, as you recall, many, many women have a paste rubbed on their face. So it's this paste that they make out of um, some tree bark, some water and a couple of other things, and they rub it all over their face. Um, it's done for several reasons from my understanding. One is to protect their skin, like a suntan lotion. Mm-hmm. Some of them paint on design. So it's done from an aesthetic point. Uh, but I remember the first time I'm, I'm, you know, I got to Yangon and I'm walking around and I was totally thrown off by seeing this paste rubbed over every woman's face. So, I mean, that was, you know, I, I was shocked. I mean, the quick <laughs> answer because I've only seen that really Madagascar, they actually do that a little bit. Okay. Not at the levels Burma mm. and Comoros, they do that a little bit. So, if you hadn't seen pictures and you didn't know, and you roll off the plane, that might be a bit of a surprise. Okay, interesting. And what about the question of what is a country? I mean, <laughs> I get a bit—I don't know what to say, basically, because there's UN countries, like you said. 193 down 166 but you must have been to regions areas territories as well as the official country right so do you count them on a separate list or do you have a list of maybe countries and territories and other stuff like how would you define a country do you think yeah i mean this of course this could be a second episode yes um so as you mentioned i'm trying to go to every country in the world and i mean this is a tiny segment of the you know world travel population right like mm-hmm. some people go on vacation they drive an hour to a lake or a beach near their home another person jets off to cancun for the week for all inclusive uh drinky drink um and then you know my little segment that i'm in is chasing 193 going to every country in the world within our community there's endless fighting arguing debate debating and sniping on what the number is I'm a simpleton. I'm using 193. That is extremely common. That's the number of member states in the United Nations. Mm-hmm. But right after that, it's, you know, you can add in the two observer states, which are Palestine and Vatican, which brings you to 195. Mm-hmm. Then there's a list of countries which are partially recognized by you, some UN members. Uh, I think it's like seven. So that would be like, Kosovo or Taiwan, yeah, which are recognized by some UN members, but I've never gone through the entire vote at the UN. Um, 
and that goes all the way down to northern Cyprus, which is recognized by one country. Yeah. So you can add on seven countries there. Yeah. Then some people will do South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Nargana, Karabakh, Transnistria, Somaliland, which in many cases really do look like countries, but mm -hmm. are recognized only by other non-countries. Um, yes. And you can keep on going down further, further down the list. Like uh, one last example is Greenland. Ah. So you can visit Greenland. And if you are chasing 193. Yeah. That's visiting Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Of course. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, they're you know completely different, but Greenland is part of Denmark. Um, but some people go, oh, I just visited a new country, Greenland. Well, it's. <laughs> In my opinion, it's not a country. It's a giant territory of 100 people. Uh, excuse me. It's a giant territory of only like 100,000 people who yeah. live there. Uh, their foreign policy and military and self-defense is controlled by Denmark. So, But it's great to grab a beer or a coffee and argue and uh, debate with all of your friends on what counts. But there's so many of these places, isn't there? I mean... Where I first recognised this sort of issue, not issue, but this debate is the Cook Islands. Mm. I don't know if you've been to Cook Islands. I was like, ah, oh, a new country. Well, it's not. It's New Zealand. It, yeah, it's part um, of New Zealand. Yeah, which if you ask the Cook Islanders, oh, you're, you're Kiwis. Uh, I don't think we are. <laughs> I mean, administratively we are, but uh, you know, as people, we're not. So there's all these places like in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, there's all these islands and Pacific Ocean too. It's just a never-ending battle really where... Someone could say they've been to a country, but actually, technically, it's part of something else. Yeah. So, like, uh, you know, someone someone's just asking if I'd been to Bermuda, which I haven't. They're like, and I'm like, well, it's not a country. It's part it's of UK. The country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, the other little rabbit hole, which is fun. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Since you're British, have you heard of the Principality of Sealand? Oh, Sealand. Yeah, it's like a little island. Yeah. So off the east coast, it's near where uh, I'm from. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I went to Harwich, which I'm pronouncing. Oh, Harwich. Yeah, yeah, down the road. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to Harwich, and I was so fortunate that I was with a small group of people that was able to visit the Principality of Sealand. Principality of Sealand has a ruling family, royal family. They have a flag, a national anthem. They have their own currency. They have all the trappings of a country. But Principality of Sealand was a formally abandoned military, uh, World War II military fortification that mm. a British family claimed and has been occupying since the late 1960s. So <laughs> this insane story, but it's been going on for 50 years and they have this incredible history uh, of this quote-unquote country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do recognize that. And there's one island in the UK that fascinates me where I've never been to, and that's Isle of Man. They technically, I think, have their own language. Uh, okay. Is it Manx, I think it's called? Just this little crossroads between Ireland and the UK in the middle mm. of the Irish Sea. Just real fascinating. Technically not a new country but it is its own thing it's just a yeah, yeah. yeah it's a rabbit yeah. hole it's a whole it's a whole episode and a whole debate i think about um where you've been and that kind of leads me to the next question are you part of any of those communities who kind of counsel these places 
Yeah, I mean, at some level, I'm, I'm in all of them. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, if you're looking for resources for traveling a little bit more off the beaten path or chasing 193, join the Facebook group, Every Passport Stamp. Um, there's three great travel clubs, again, for people who are into chasing 193 or more challenging locations. You have the Traveler Century Club. You have mosttraveledpeople.com and nomadmania.com. So all three are great, incredible resources and MTP and Nomad Mania are also great platforms to track your travels as well. So awesome resources. Okay, that's great. And have you been to, is it Bouvet Island? <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's the Holy Grail. Yeah. It's this <laughs> tiny island give or take what we'll call it like three by five miles. It's uninhabited. It's in the South Atlantic. Um, I've not been there in this. I mean, like Frank's walk across DRC. I have absolutely no desire to visit <laughs> Bouvet Island. I've had a you know handful of my friends who've been there. It's a tremendous uh, dedication of time and money to go there. And the other little catch is... These are South Atlantic oceans. Um, there's no guarantee you land. So I've known of a couple of outings where the best they can do is sell around the island. So, you know, you spend $25,000 to sail out there. You're unable to land there because the waters are so rough. I spoke to Dave Seminar about this, about the mental impact of that, because it takes days, money, and you get literally stepping distance away and like no we can't land there that must be because if you don't go on it, it doesn't count right can't count well that well i mean not to rabbit hole this <laughs> you know some of these travel clubs i've mentioned um you know there's always these secondary debates so some of these clubs are defining what counts as a visit mm. so i forget which one it is but i think one defines a visit as circumnavigating the island if you um, are ah, on the land. But, interesting. But it's eye the beholder. I mean, I don't count floating by something as visiting, but, you know, if you spend 25 grand, you know, <laughs> possibly, you know, you, you want that uh, feeling of satisfaction. Yeah, it's very interesting. Okay. It, uh, a little question attached to that is, what about if you're on a layover? And you go through security, you get your stamp, but you're only there in the airport for two or three hours. This happened to me in the British Virgin Islands. So I had to stay there for four islands. I think uh, four hours I was going somewhere else. But I got a stamp. I walked out of the airport, had a coffee, walked back in. I mean, does that technically count? Even though it's not technically a country because it's a part of the British Islands and all that sort of stuff. But is that technically a visit? You tell me. Uh, <laughs> do you know what my thought on it is? As it's not a real country in terms of like it's not part of the UN, not one nine three. I'm not bothered by it. Mm -mm. If it was uh, Grenada in the Caribbean and I had to do that, I would count. I would count it because I'd want to say that I've been there. But it's not really an experience, is it? It's just mm -mm. that's count country counting. Then at that point, isn't it? Yeah. So so. The group nomadmania.com, which I encourage everybody to take a look, is this great resource for the community. They do a lot of surveys. So yeah. one of their big surveys in 2022 
is what counts as a visit. Mm. And they gave all these different hypotheticals. So it, and, uh, this is the sense of what they were writing in one example. Yeah. Okay. So you take a train through a country. So you're in this country for four hours looking at the train window. Yeah. You never stop. Were you in Serbia? And then the next question is, you take the train through Serbia and then you stop at one platform and you get out and you stand on the platform. Then the <laughs> next question was, the train goes through Serbia, you stop at the platform, but you walk 200 meters away from the platform. And then the next question is, you were drunk and you were passed out during the entire ride through the country. Did you visit? <laughs> so it's... Again, grab a beer, grab a coffee, get some friends. What's the right answer? I mean, it's it's simply eye of the beholder. There's mm -hmm. no universal governing body which lays down the rules or the law for travelers. So when you gave your example at British Virgin Islands, I wouldn't count it. I mean, that's my one rule. I don't count airport transfers, but I have got lost once and I drove in uh, Monteneg uh, Montenegro for 45 minutes once. Mm -hmm. I was there. I mean, it's hard to say I wasn't in Mont Montenegro. I stamped in, I stamped out, spoke to a couple of people, but I mean, it wasn't some great visit. Okay. Another question for you then. Another scenario that I was in, in South America, which I think you're going to in a few days time. I was at the point, now forget, forgive me if I get this wrong, there's a point where three countries meet and Paraguay is one of them. I think it's Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil could be wrong. And you can go into Paraguay without going through any passport stamp control. You just waltz in. So I walked into Paraguay unofficially, went to a few markets, again, had a coffee, went to a few markets, bought something, then walked back into Argentina and carried on my trip. So did I technically go into Paraguay at that point? Again? <laughs> But you said you bought something in Paraguay? Yeah, I you know, actively went to Paraguay, wanted to go and look at some markets on the border. I think I bought some sunglasses or something like that. So I did yeah. spend money in that country, in their currency. So I, I'm guessing it might have been, were you out of Gazoo Falls? Yes. Okay. I mean, so it's hard. I mean, again, it's whatever you believe, but I mean, it would be very difficult for me to say you haven't been to Paraguay. So mm. if you walked over there, you're in Paraguay and you're talking to some guy, you're in a market and you bought some sunglasses and had a coffee. How can I say that you haven't been to Paraguay? Mm. Uh, but again, it's like everybody can create their own rules. So someone's rule is you have to spend 24 hours in that country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, there's no universal governing body which has set down the rules that everybody has to abide by. So it's your own rule. Okay. And these communities that you mentioned, am I right in thinking if you get to like the higher echelons in terms of numbers, like your number 166, because you're so close to getting to 193, for example, would they provide, would they want proof that you actually went to the next country? Because we can all say we've been everywhere. I think that's part of Dave Seminara's book about this guy who apparently can travel everywhere. He's, being there all that sort of stuff like you have to prove it right at, at that level y yes or no so uh one of those organizations nomad mania will verify you so once you complete i, I think i think they wait till you finish 
Um, but number one, not everybody's on Nomad Mania. True. Number two, you don't have to submit to the verification. Um, mm. So it, again, it's up to every, I mean, like Guinness World Records is another organization that will verify you in very, very, very specific situations when you are attempting to set a record. Um, mm. And Guinness World Record has their own rules for verification or what counts as a country or as a visit compared to somebody else. So uh, th there's this amazing travel story taking place right now with two just incredible, amazing travelers. One is a British guy, Graham Hughes, and the other is a Danish man, Thor Peterson. Thor Peterson, yeah. So yeah. Graham Hughes, I'm going to just round down, say about 10 years ago, finished traveling to every country in the world without ever flying on an airplane. He has a Guinness World Record. Thor Peterson just finished a nine and a half year journey. Thor never took an airplane, spent a minimum of 24 hours in each country, and never returned home. So now both of them claim to have traveled to every country in the world without flying. But there's a couple of major differences. You might argue they're semantics. You might say mm. not. But Graham did not have the 24-hour rule. Right. So there's, I mean, and you can see the videos, there's some situations where he's in Africa or whatever, and he steps over the border and he's got the GPS and he uh, makes a record of it. And again, okay, I'm, he's in Zambia. I mean, that's, the GPS isn't going to lie, but he spent whatever it was, five or 10 minutes or one minute in there. And uh, also he flew home to the UK a couple of times during his journey. Now, hmm. he always flew back to where he left and then continued his journey. So again, the the travel gods can go out there and debate who really did it, who didn't, who was the first, who was the second. But, you know, all these, you can make your own rules or the rules are different or different organizations have different rules. So it's, it's a big fun debate and mess. Yeah. So are they, go, are they both going for the same title, if you like, of uh, trans well, every country about flying? Is that what they're both, or are well, they sort of niches in terms of what they're doing? Yeah, well, Gr Graham has a Guinness World Record, and again, you would you would have to get the precise wording of what that record is, um, mm. so you can Google that. Uh, I don't believe Thor is going to be trying to get the same Guinness World Record, um, but again, you can say it's semantics, you can say it's not, but Thor had that 24-hour rule, and Thor never went home in nine and a half years. Yeah. And during that nine and a half years, he never got on a plane. Mm. Graham would step his foot over the border and he did fly mm. while he was setting that record. Yeah. I had the beholder. I think some people are like, oh, this doesn't even matter. But I guess in that community, it would. It, well, it matters very much to the both of them. Yeah. And it matters to the community. Uh, but to that guy you bought the sunglasses off of in Paraguay, <laughs> He doesn't care. 
no, absolutely not. Have you heard of the another British guy called? Uh, he's called the hardest geezer. He's called Russ, and he's running the full length of Africa. He thinks he might be the first person to do that. Uh, well, he, he's definitely hardcore in my book. I've not heard of him. Okay. Um, I mean, so now, I mean, now we're going to go down the, the rabbit hole again. I mean, there's tons of people. I don't want to say tons. There's people who've walked it. There's yeah. people who've ridden the bike, motorcycle and driven. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not aware of anybody technically jogging. Yeah, he's running it, All yeah. of Africa. And then, you know, I would start with the questions. I'm like, <laughs> how does it really work? I mean is he really running eight hours a day and he stops exactly where he stops running and then he continues yeah, or then yeah. he's taking a taxi to a hotel and then, you know, so, but I mean, God bless him. And whether he walks or run it, it's again, something I would never want to do. Yeah. He, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. He's running it. He's going to the DRC, I think fairly soon. He's got to go yeah, through that. Yeah, so hope, hope he knows what he's getting into. If not speak to Frank, he'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're they're very interesting, fun conversations. They are. I think they're quite niche in terms of the extreme travel community. But we're going to go into some of your stuff now, and going to kick off with your counting countries podcast. So tell the listeners what's your premise there and who goes on that podcast. Yep. So counting countries podcast. I've been doing it 2015 or 2016, and I interviewed. Uh, the world's most traveled people who are traveling to every country in the world or or who have already completed the goal and also uh, very long format interviews of 90 minutes to three hours plus. So there's special requirements to get onto your podcast? Well, I mean, special, but it's you've either done the 193 mm. or you're in the process of completing the goal. Okay, and how often do you release a podcast episode? Uh, it's changed over the years. Right now, it's monthly. Okay, and is it fairly easy to get guests? I guess it's quite a unique niche that, group of people, what, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I kind of thought in the beginning. Yeah, like oh, it's a very limited universe, and maybe I'll have to stop in several years. But that's not the case. I mean, at monthly, I mean, it's it's really infinite. Yeah, the, the community. The the 193 community has grown so extensively uh, just in the last five years that there's so many more people who are trying to accomplish that goal. So I'm not worried about running out of guests. Okay, interesting. I think that's my secret goal, 193. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, that, Welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm nowhere it's near It's official yet. now since you said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it all comes down to realism doesn't it? Money, time, all that sort of stuff. But that is a goal of mine, I think, eventually. Okay. And you also hold an event called the Extraordinary Travel Festival? That is correct, James. <clears throat> so um, as I just mentioned, this community, I mean, it's robust. It's grown so much. It's diverse. It's uh it's everywhere, uh, you know, every country, every continent. <clears throat> most of, I mean, in some ways, most of it's online, right? You know, mm -hmm. you're on Facebook or Instagram, you're exchanging WhatsApp. Um, <clears throat> so in other words, like in the quote unquote olden days, I would never call someone my friend who I've never met. But 
now I, you know, now I have these 193 friends, you know, someone who I might've been exchanging messages with for six years, or maybe talk on WhatsApp, but I've never met them in real life. Um, mm -hmm. So the uh, concept of this festival, the Extraordinary Travel Festival, was bringing the community community together in person. The first event was in October of 2022 in Armenia, and 130 of us gathered for a multi-day event of parties and dinners and trips and traveling. And I had uh, close to 30 different speakers over the three days. Wow. And when's the next one, June? Uh, um, so the, the next event will be November 15th, 2024. And you've not well, announced where, right, so far? The location will be announced at the end of August. So it's a secret, cool. uh, which we'll be uh, announcing shortly. I think I'm going to come. I think that's on my list next year. Yeah, yeah. I would love it. That'd I'll be crack great. Open the beer and start debating. <laughs> yeah, I've actually got another quick question about these communities. Is there one? If someone's listening right now and think, "Ah, oh, I might join one," is there one that you'd recommend first off joining, or does it not not matter which one you? Well, you join? I'll tell you. I'll. I mean, uh, I've mentioned four. Three of them are free. So okay, join every passport stamp on Facebook. Yeah. I've joined that uh, one. I've joined that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll see you in there. And then yeah. definitely, I mean, Nomad Mania, again, incredible resource, MTP, great resource. So join, join those three. And the people that come to your travel fest, would you say the majority of those people are part of these groups? I would say the, I mean, not everybody's in every single group. No, um, but... in, I would say the vast majority, at least, one of them is in one of those groups or listening to my podcast as well. Got it. And what are your thoughts on a travel podcast in terms of trying to do it, traveling and podcasting? <laughs> so I've experienced this year that it's bloody tough. <laughs> um, organization is tough if you're going about quite frequently, you're moving places online, no guarantee of Wi-Fi, how good the connection is, stuff like that. Like how is that quite a unique uh, area travel podcasting whilst traveling because I've not seen many people do it or seen it as a, as much as what I thought I'd see. Yeah, um, the real I, I don't know the breakdown to be honest. I mean, mm. I just know personally what I do. I only podcast six months of the year, so to speak. So okay. I spend yeah. three months. I spend a random ninety days in Bangkok throughout the year. Yeah, and then I spend. Uh, another 90 days in the US. The other six months, I'm traveling here and there. Mm -hmm. So I only uh, podcast when I'm either in Thailand or the US because uh, internet, uh, I don't want to carry my microphone. I mean, it's not <laughs> a lot of equipment, but that's still another yeah, pound and a half. <laughs> and yeah. then, um, you, you know, when you're traveling, I mean, sometimes you're moving around quickly or you don't know where you're going to be next. Mm. Um, and again, internet is extremely scary, whether you have it or not, or whether it works or not. So for me, simple. Uh, I only have two windows where I'm podcasting. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, I find it quite stressful at times. Uh, yeah. I managed to find people in person. So like in Paris, I interviewed the Eiffel Tower, that guy there, um, Oliver G. That was quite good, meeting in a cafe for an hour. But 
trying to find someone in person in the place you're traveling to that doesn't speak English, but who speaks English. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's not many people out there. You know, they've got to be a writer yeah. or maybe someone who's moved out there or someone who's extremely confident going on a podcast to speak a second language. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Pally Bo. Pally's another Danish gentleman who was like a real radio guy for like 20 or 30 years. Mm. He quit his job, sold all of his belongings, and he's also chasing 193. Yeah. A little uh, much more slow travel. Um, and part of his gig is he is documenting his travels. Not sometimes he interviews people, but he's documenting his travel. So he's recording all the time, uh, you know, with the with the microphone as he travels, and he'll produce from the road. Uh, so okay. The bond. That was my rule this year. My solo episodes are a document of our travels, and that's been the one constant. That's easy microphone. I can do it in 10, 15 minutes. And what's good about that is if you take away trying to get listeners, trying to get people interested, it's just a, go- a great way to remember what you've done. Because mm. I don't think I remember what I what we did day to day on the Interrail Pass, for example, but I can go back to the podcast and listen and, oh, we did that. Okay, cool. Mm-mm. That's been pretty cool as well. Uh, I've quite enjoyed that. Mm. So there's been two pronged attacks on the podcast. For mine this year is interviews and solo episodes. And I think they yeah. suit both. I don't know if you find this long form audience and short form audience, they're different people. Yeah, I, I mean, it's two different beasts. Um, I don't have that uh, debate, so to speak, because yeah. mine's the same animal every every download. I admire that because I've been told by a few other, what well, don't you call them, podcasts, experts, marketers, that short form is the way to go. I'm like, nah, it's long form, mate. Yeah. How can you get to know someone in 15 minutes? You can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And especially with travel and so many stories, you've got to have a long form, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know what I think. (laughs) That's great. And can we touch on very quickly, films, you've done a few films. Yeah. um, And this is just kind of like the circle of life and serendipity. Um, One time I participated in this kind of a rally, a race, where I drove 7000 kilometers over 17 days from uh, from uh, Budapest to Yerevan, Armenia. Okay. So you were competing against other teams. It's kind of just this epic journey, uh, barnstorming through this uh, interesting part of Europe and the Caucasus. When I got to the uh, Armenia, I met some old friends from my volunteering days. One of them was a former student from the after school group who is now then like a 22 year old guy. And he was a professional filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And I was regaling him with these amazing journeys of this road trip. One thing led to another and we said, oh, we're going to film a movie. So I found another rally and this rally was driving a auto rickshaw. (laughs) So, you know, the three wheeled yeah, uh, semi-open vehicles with the seven-horsepower engine from Mumbai to Chennai, so two thousand kilometers, and it was uh, twelve days. So my former student and his brother joined me and my friend Keith, who drove the rickshaw, and we shot this full-length movie, which we ended up uh, putting on iTunes and Amazon, etc., and going to film festivals 
So it was this, I mean, it was just this awesome, really rich experience and adventure that I would never. <laughs> it was this really rich experience, adventure that I would have never envisioned, you know, like when you're in school or college or mm. working a quote unquote real job. So it just, you know, circle of life, fruition, serendipity came to life. And people can find that on Amazon. Yeah, uh, so you, uh, Amazon and iTunes, uh, like, I mean, we were the, I mean, my little claim to fame for one day or whatever it was, like in the United Kingdom, we were the number three documentary for several days. Oh, nice. Again, I mean, it, it was something cool for me. I mean, not for, you know, for a real filmmaker, it wouldn't be anything exciting. But yeah. for me, uh, you know, looking on that list and seeing my film up there was pretty cool. So hit the road India, and then we made another version, hit the road Cambodia. Lovely. I think I saw, is it called the Rickshaw Rally? Is that one? Is that, is that the same thing or not? So, you, you know, we're talking about the 193 community, and then yeah. there's kind of like this adventure rally segment of travel, which is also just awesome <laughs> and amazing. Yeah. Uh, out of England, you have the adventurist. They're kind of the big daddy. Okay. They're famous for the Mongol run. Yeah, yeah, Mongol Rally, yeah. Driving, uh, some friends have done that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's driving a piece of junk from London yeah. uh, to Ulaanbaatar. It, yeah. It's just this, like, magnificent journey. Um, and now there's just, like, dozens and dozens of these adventures around the world. Um, I've gone with this company called Large Minority, uh, another British guy. He runs them in Sri Lanka. He ran the one in Cambodia I did. Um, so yeah, there's, it's the, it's an awesome way to see the country, right? Because you're traveling slowly, the vehicle's open, you're breaking down all the time, you're running out of gas and you're not in the big city necessarily, right? You might be in some tiny village. So you get to see the country, talk to people, just this awesome, in essence, in essence, it's a catalyst to have these great experiences and interactions with real people. Yeah, I mean, my experience would have been I was volunteering in Jai Samir. I come outside, I was like, what's all this commotion? All the crowd are gathering around the road and the rickshaws are just bombing past us. Saw a Scottish flag, saw an English flag. Oh, I've never heard of this. I was just in the office helping this camel safari uh, mm. company do some emails. But yeah, they were just rattling through and it's good atmosphere and people were loving it. Yeah, it was great. Awesome. Okay, and well, books. You've done some books as well. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, I mean, when you give me the introduction, it's like, sounds like um, this. Multi-facet, yeah. (laughs) Crazy accomplished person. It's like, oh, he's a professional photographer. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I've literally, I mean, I've taken, you know, hundreds of thousands of photos. Um, It's a big hobby passion of mine. And I've sold photos of mine in the past, you know, whether it's a cover of a book or whatnot. So, I mean, I'm technically professional. Professional, yeah. Yeah. That's I'm not I'm not making my living off that by any stretch of the imagination. When it comes to books or even movies, I mean, I'm not saying anything that's some big surprise or mystery. The barrier to success in content creation is not creating the content, it's the marketing of whatever you create after the fact. So mm. yeah, I mean, I self-published three books. I'm actually working on a fourth. Um 
And yeah, it, it's it's just the personal satisfaction of you know taking your energies and creating something. And yeah, I mean, I sell some, but again, you know, I'm not on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. But uh, it's you know great to be able to pick up pick up a book off of a coffee table with your name on it. Yeah, I think that's the achievement. Just to have it published and in some, and somewhere where people can actually buy it. it I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it's more. It, it it's it's a hundred x the work to market the book. Yeah, and it's like, like sometimes when I would consider marketing the book, it'd be like, okay, what's the cost of whatever I'm thinking about, and then the margin on the book is so small. It's like even when you're marketing the book, you're actually in some ways losing money. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. And those bestseller lists, I mean, I don't want to put the achievement down, but I'm sure a lot of artists get their mates and get a lot of communities by one day, uh, a load of the books, and they make the list, and it's like best-selling book. Yeah, well, yeah. it is, hacking, but it's not. Hacking Amazon. I mean, yeah, yeah. To, there's yeah. tricks uh, to, to get on the top of those lists because it's sub, sub, sub categories. It's like yeah. when they say they're number one, it's like, you, you know, it's like, fiction and then it's historical and then yeah. it's like 16th century and then it's europe and then you know it's agrarian uh <laughs> fiction in europe in the 16th century and yeah you're, you're number one so. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah okay and can you tell people where they can find you on your website and that's where they can find obviously all your blogs that you've written before mm-hmm. all links to books and stuff what is your website called yeah, uh, so I would point people, I'll, I'll give a couple, extraordinarytravelfestival.com and, you know, all of its associated social media. So you can sign up for the newsletter or social media to find out when we announce the location in the end of August. Uh, Counting Countries is my podcast on your podcast player. And globalgaz.com is the website and, you know, the associated social media with that. Great. And before we get to the quickfire travel questions to finish the episode, what's next on your travel plans? Yeah, as you noted, uh, uh, this Friday for me, August 4th, I'm traveling to French Guiana, Suriname, and Guiana. Ah, those three. my last countries in South America, and that will be the first continent I will have completed, assuming I make it. Uh, be up into Antarctica, right? I've been to Antarctica, correct. So you completed that one, technically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, good point. I didn't think about that. So my second complete... <laughs> semantics. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Semantics. I, I, I'm not putting it down, just saying, uh, yeah, because you've been to Antarctica, so I think you... Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. good point, good point. But in terms of, uh, how can, I, can, you put, can you say normal, a normal continent where people live? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. A, a continent with country. This will be my <laughs> first continent with countries I will, yeah. will have completed. Oh, that's awesome. They're, they're normally a three that obviously people don't really go to, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and case in point, you know, they got left behind for me. And French Guiana is technically not a country. Oh, is it not? Oh, wow. It, it's not yeah, 193? It's, it's oh. part of France. So, oh. I mean, it, it's a nightmare to get to. So you can take a domestic flight from mm-hmm. Paris to French <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was just talking with another travel friend. There are no flights from French Guiana to Suriname, its neighbor. There are no flights from French Guiana to Guiana, its one over neighbor. Yeah. So for me to get there, it's going to take me three days out of Boston. 
So you're going across the Atlantic? Uh, uh, I, I was debating that, but what I'm doing is I'm flying to Miami. Yeah. Then flying to Martinique. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then okay. get to French because Martinique is also French, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the way it works, even though their neighbor is their neighbor, there's that no flight strange. there. So it's kind of this whole Francophile, uh, you know, environment. So they have direct flights from Martinique in France, but not from the actual neighbor touching the country. It's crazy. That's crazy. They must have maybe buses that go to the border, right? Um, well, I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm crossing a river to get from French Guiana to Suriname. And I guess it's literally you jump in some little wooden pirogue <laughs> is what I've been reading. So I'll know that better in a week or so when I figure it out and try and try and figure out how to cross it. What a great adventure. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Again, three countries in an arid world that just do not get that much context or coverage at all, really, from a lot of travellers. Um, but yeah, I guess they are countries, apart from French Ghana, to, to check out in terms yeah. of uh, ticking off a list. And they are new countries, so that'd be 167, 168. Correct, correct. And anything else after that, rest of the year? And then I'm hoping for two more uh, before the year ends, September, October, Libya and Turkmenistan. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of content in Turkmenistan. I think I follow a few people who do tours there. They, it seems well, pretty cool. Turkmenistan was the second to last country to open up over COVID. So they just opened up in May of this year or April. Mm-hmm. So there's been some pent up demand. So that's why you might be seeing mm-hmm. in your IG feed the yep. cra- the Darvaza crater, gas crater. So that's that big yes. hole in the desert with the fire. Gates of hell. The, yeah, the gate of hell. So, um, yeah. yeah, so a lot of people are jumping on that bandwagon since they had <laughs> a couple of years to go visit. Okay. And Libya is an interesting place to go Lib- check out. Libya has been close to uh, U.S. citizens. So they have not been uh, processing passports, U.S. passports. Mm-hmm. That changed also a couple of months ago for U.S. citizens. So yeah. the door is open. So again, uh, there's pent up demand for Americans trying to get into Libya. Cool. They're fantastic trips. So that'll take you to 170. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully end the year on 170, which is a nice round number. <laughs> that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Just about 100 more than me. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. We're going to finish the episode on some quick fire travel questions. You did note these might be the toughest ones. These are normally the first things that come to mind. And this is going to be a pretty tough one, I'd imagine. Hey, yeah, just a quick one. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with TeePublic, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as T-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, You can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcasts, and other stuff. Thank you. It's travel question time. The top three countries that you travel to. 
what happens if I say Burma, Madagascar, and Armenia? Is that, that cheating? No, it's not cheating if you want to put those in yeah. stone. I, I mean, the reality is every time I get asked this question, I the, the answer changes. Yeah. Because uh, there's no true favorite for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I just picked some of my favorites, Thailand, Bhutan, uh, Burma. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, they're all great countries. I mean, there's a there's a top tier category with probably, you know, several dozen or a couple dozen. Okay. And we kind of answer this next question. Which the normal question after this is three countries not traveled to that are next on your list, but you've just given four or five this year. Um, would you say those are, if you could go anywhere that you've not been, would they, are they the ones you definitely want to go to next? Or was, was there a few in the list that you just couldn't really make happen? I'm excited about all of them, uh, more so Libya and Turkmenistan. Mm. Yeah, very unique. Okay. And if you could sit and have a coffee in any city in the world and watch the world go by, where are you going to sit? Hmm. That's why I'm so, I don't know whether to answer from a co coffee perspective. Oh, that's or, the next question. Uh, no, just from the city perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love people watching. So, I, I mean, it might be something just like Yerevan because, again, I just love sit. Uh, Yerevan is this giant cafe culture. So, oh, dream. weather's good. As soon as it starts warming up, yeah, you're gonna head out to the cafe. So, whether it's a coffee or a beer or wine, yeah, that's awesome. Or some somewhere like India, like going to Delhi to Chandri Chalk. <laughs> Chaos. Yeah. So, I mean. <laughs> That's as good as any, you know, Mission Impossible movie. You can just sit there and soak it all in. Lovely. Okay. And next question is, which country does the best coffee, would you say? Uh, I'm going to do my favorite coffee. And yep. that's M Cafe. And M Cafe is a tiny cafe in the building I live in, in Bangkok. And usually around 12 o'clock every day. I go down there for my iced cappuccino and talk to the owner for a couple of minutes. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of my daily routine when I'm, I'm back home there. Love it. Okay. And top three favorite cuisines that you've tasted on your travels. Mm. Um, Lebanese Syrian, uh, number one, number two, Indian and number three, Italian. Got it. Those last two very popular answers, of course. And a favorite beach? Um, favorite beach is going to be Komak. Komak is this tiny island with a couple thousand residents near the bigger island of Koh Chang in Thailand near the Cambodian border. Okay. And what about a favorite walk, hike, or trek? <laughs> Uh, favorite walk, hike, or trek. Now it's going to sound like I, I never walk. Um, <laughs> where is one of my, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to say if this was my favorite, but it, it's memorable. I was in Cameroon, uh, last year. And there's a tribe of people called the Koma people, which live on both sides of Cameroon and Nigeria. And it, it was brutal to get there because we we're, you know, we we're talking about bad roads. We had to fly to this pretty remote airport and then drive for about eight hours. 
We get to this tiny village near Nigeria. Then we jump on motorbikes um, for about an hour and we get off the motorbikes because the trail stopped. And then we had to walk for another 90 minutes through blistering hot heat in the middle of this mountainous area on the border until we got to meet the Coma people. So very memorable. Wow. Okay. Uh, if you could live in one country for a year that you've not lived in before, where would you live? I am going to live in Uzbekistan. Awesome. Okay. And what about a favorite landmark? It can be nature or man-made. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, one of those tough ones. I'm going to say Anger Wat. Um, I just went for my fifth visit a couple months ago. Uh, same thing. You know, my first one was about 20 years ago. Um, it, it's just, in my opinion, just magnificent, magical. And it was just as stunning to to visit again uh, on this recent trip. Okay. This might be a tough one. Is there a least favorite country that you traveled to? Um, well, I, I mean, I'll say Ethiopia. Oh. I think you've been there. No, I haven't been. Uh, I'm, I've, I've, not, been. I've not been to Africa, so. Oh, okay. Um, so Ethiopia has really high expectations when I went to visit. I would have high expectations, yeah. Uh, I think I went there like 2015-ish. And I mean, this is one of those like, you know, not non-colonized country in Africa dating back eons of history um you know just these magical places of Addis Ababa and Lalabella um I spent a couple weeks there and you know the reality was it's just it, it was a frustrating time um a lot so many people love this country but also if you ask a little bit they also have a same a lot of the same negative experiences I've had meaning you know, the people st uh, throwing stones at you or chasing you and trying to rob you and virtually everybody's asking for money. And to be, I mean, the reality is after a couple of weeks, this got extremely tedious. And uh, I, I usually say this country is my bottom pick. Interesting. Because I had a chat with David's uh, seminar about that, about he had a chapter in his book about the the people who don't like travel. So that kind of that kind of intrigued me to ask me more, how can I put it, honest questions about travel? Yeah. Maybe not all fluffy duffy and all that sort of stuff. Okay. If you could interview one person on your podcast that you've not interviewed before, who's that going to be? Do they have to be alive? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm talking like a realistic person who's, who's about. Uh, uh, um... <laughs> Well, I, I actually, you just reminded me to follow up with this guy. So there's a guy named Bruno Rodi. Okay. Um, I, I, I think he's Canadian and he's an older guy and I've known of him and he just kind of re came back on my radar screen. And I'm like, I've got to talk to this guy. Um, he's been to every country in the world. He's been to the North Pole, the South Pole. And he's climbed the seven summits. Oh, so wow. The highest mountain huh. on each continent. So, and on top of this, and I got to get the details. So this is kind of secondhand. And these, I can't really find him on the web. Like also when he went to the South Pole, my understanding that most people go to the South Pole, spend about $80,000 and they fly in a Russian plane from South Africa mm. to the South Pole, spend a couple of hours and then fly back. Oh, okay. Right. 
this guy, from my understanding, I have to confirm this. He he pulled a sled and walked there. <laughs> um, so th- th- this guy sounds, uh, you know, epic. So I do I do want to get him and uh, document some of his travels and experiences. Okay, very interesting guy. Uh, that, I don't know. Okay, two questions. Put up what question is: If someone wants to do the one nine three in one sentence. What's the best bit of advice you can give those people? Don't give up. Okay. And the last question is more generic to travel. If someone's listening right now, who's maybe not traveled as much or at all, but is thinking about it, what two sentences or three can you give to maybe motivate these people to take a risk, get out there and see a different culture and country? Yeah, uh, it's it's somewhat similar. It's don't make an excuse. so I, what my keynote speaker at the Extraordinary Travel Festival was Tony Giles. He's another Brit. He's been to 130 countries, which is extremely impressive and admirable. And he likes to couch surf. He takes public buses and transportation. But a lot of people do that, but nonetheless, still an impressive travel resume. The catch is he's blind. So imagine going to Pakistan, not speaking Urdu, taking a bus for six hours, and then hoping your couch surfing host is going to meet you at the bus. Hmm. So his takeaway in his keynote was stop making excuses, go out and do it. Um, so I'm going to steal his, his line and tell everybody same message. That's awesome. Okay, Rick, thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's been a great chat. Lots of debates, lots of conversations, lots of countries. I've learned a lot and thanks for making time to come on to the wing in it james thank you uh, yeah great talking with you and uh really fun and interesting conversation so thank you thanks so much thank you for listening to my wing in it travel podcast episode today you can find me on instagram at james hammond travel or wing in it travel podcast you can search for both i release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel Podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.